0: Us is maybe one of the more famous stories. Uh, At least, I don't know. Certain stories stick out more, I guess, in our brains. It's very easy to understand the story. Uh, There's uh, uh, several dynamic characters. We have a short guy, we have climbing up a tree. We have a number of things going on in the story. And, And really, as we think about our story with Zacchaeus today, it's a culmination, a repetition of a lot of things that we see in Luke's gospel. This is, of course, not at the very end, but towards the later part of Jesus' ministry. We're about to enter into a number of different uh, things leading up to his death and burial and resurrection. And this is a a story that encapsulates a lot of things that Luke has been saying over the course of his gospel. Now, as we've been going through this, this series, we have not necessarily just been focusing on Luke, but we'll try to bring some of that out today as we think about the things that Luke is presenting to us in his gospel. Of course, last week, Luke 18, 24, we looked at, of course, Matthew and Mark, but our encounter last week about wealth we see in Luke 18, 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, the rich ruler said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, remember the rich ruler was sad because Jesus said, go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, come follow me. And he had a bunch of stuff he didn't want to get rid of. And again, we, we really made the point probably in light of their particular covenant with God, he's maybe thinking, what's the point of accumulating all this if I have to get rid of it? He's sad because he doesn't want to get rid of his stuff. And the, uh, the disciples, those who heard it, they're astonished. Why would it be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? They're the most righteous people. They're the ones who have been blessed by God. They're the ones that have the most righteousness. If they can't do it, who can be saved? So Jesus reminds them, of course, With God, all things are possible. That's the way Matthew and Mark phrase it. Luke phrases it a little differently. But the story of Zacchaeus is the perfect story to illustrate what God is talking about here, what Jesus is teaching. Only with great difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. And then lo and behold, the next story here, we see a rich man who had some problems because of his wealth, and really it's not his wealth, it's his greed, his desire for wealth, that gets him in trouble here. But we see what it takes. What does it take for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? So our story, Luke 19, 1 through 4. He entered Jericho, that is Jesus, and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, we should spend some time considering the role, the context of a chief tax collector in first century Israel. Taxes, of course, flowed all the way up through. They've got different levels of government. At the pinnacle of the different levels of government is Rome. Rome, of course, the conquering enemy of Israel. They're the the occupying force at this time. But Rome didn't collect taxes themselves. They outsourced that. So you had Rome, of course, in, in Rome and all of the, the imperial government. And then you had regions. You had different regions ruled by kings or governors, various uh, governing authorities. And, of course, Rome would give the governors or the kings the responsibility. Hey, you got to give us tribute, pay taxes. And then those kings or governors, they would in turn by region or by city, they would have various locals who would actually go and do the mechanical work of collecting the taxes. But the tax law was a little lax, a little loose, not well defined. Of course, Rome knew what they wanted. The kings knew what they wanted. But at the base level, the individual level, there was a lot of leeway for the tax collector. Okay, well, you need to give us X amount to the governor and then the governor on to Rome. But if you collect extra, who are we to get in the way of that? If you want to get some more for yourself, well, that's that's fine. You do what you have to do as long as we get what we need to get. And that's, of course, the rule of the governor, or the, the king, or the, at the high end, the emperor at the time. As long as everybody gets what's their owed, if, if the tax collector wants to get a little extra, who are we to say, right? Who are, who are we to get in the way of that? And so we think about the role of a chief tax collector in Israel. He is one on the local level. He is one of those who has been assigned either by the governor or the king in this region. You need to go and collect taxes and then give it to us. And, you know, we know what we want. But if you collect extra, that's okay. He was rich, which means we, right off the bat, we can understand Zacchaeus, probably not a great dude. He has accumulated wealth because he has gathered more in taxes than he was obligated to give to the governor. That's how he became rich. He gathered more than he needed to gather. He was seeking to see, this tax collector, who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up the sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Why was Zacchaeus so interested in seeing Jesus? And here's where we get into some of the the context in Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Uh, In other gospels, this is Matthew. He said to him, follow me. Leaving everything, he rose and followed him, and Levi made a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat with, and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It's interesting. Sinners is a, a large group, of course, but the tax collectors were worthy of their own special category. We've got sinners. Oh, but then we have tax collectors. Because not only are tax collectors robbing people, that's what they're doing. They're robbing people. They're doing so ultimately at the behest of the invading government, Rome, perpetuating the cycle of domination that Rome has. And the Pharisees and the scribes, oh, you read that. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, the undercurrent in these verses, we'll read a lot of this as we go through. The undercurrent, of course, he eats with sinners. Who is a sinner? Well, that's everybody. Anybody that Jesus eats with is a sinner. And here we see the first flaw, the first inkling that the Pharisees are not so much better than the tax collectors as they have lumped certain sins, certain kinds of behavior, into less righteous than others. And this has led to some problems in their thinking. Luke 7:29. When the people heard this, the tax collectors too, this is after a teaching of Jesus, They declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, uh, not having been baptized by him. Jesus said, To what then shall I compare the people of just this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in a marketplace calling to one another. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge. You did not weep. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. That is, he's ascetic. He doesn't indulge the flesh. You say, he is a demon. The son of man comes eating and drinking. That is, he spends time with people. He spends a lot of time eating. The son of man comes eating and drinking. He say, you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And what's Jesus' point here? John, he's an ascetic. He's not indulging in the flesh at all. You're not going to listen to him. Me, I come. I I spend time eating and drinking and spending time with people. You're not going to listen to me. The problem is not John or Jesus. The problem is you. course, the tax collectors here realize there's something special going on because they've been neglected this whole time. So Zacchaeus, by the time of Luke 19, Jesus has demonstrated a key part of who he is and what he cares about. Your background doesn't matter. Your past sins don't matter. Jesus is not going to write you off just because of your past, because of what you used to do. Where most tax collectors, I imagine, had been written off. People didn't want to associate with them. People didn't want to be with them. People didn't like them, especially the religious elite. They're totally horrible people. They're totally irredeemable. Jesus comes along. He's a teacher. He has authority. He has power. And he has shown them value, shown the tax collectors that they matter in a way that probably no one else in authority has in Israel. What mattered was the mission motivated by love, which he's going to reiterate at the end of this encounter with Zacchaeus. His willingness to befriend and spend time with the moral outcast. Now, we could say oppressed here. Let's be clear. The tax collectors, they're not oppressed. They're the oppressors, right? They're the ones who are robbing and and stealing and getting rich off of the, the suffering of others. But they are moral outcasts. They're not oppressed in a physical sense, but they are oppressed in an emotional, social sense. They're outcasts morally, that people polite society, people in, in the towns and the places would not, want, want nothing to do with them. Be a lonely existence. Now, of course, it's their own fault. Ultimately, we understand that. Still, it would be a lonely existence. And so Jesus is not writing them off, willing to spend time with them. That was one of the things that got him in the most trouble, right? How dare you spend time with these people, these horrible, lowly people? Now, this should remind us, of course, for us, what is our mission And what does fulfilling that mission look like? Who are we befriending, associating with, attempting to reach? Who have we written off? Because, well, that person, they're definitely not going to believe. How dare you? You have no idea. You're not God. You're not Jesus. That is judging in the worst possible way. How are we supposed to emulate Jesus? As we go through here, Luke 19, verse 5. Jesus came to the place. He looked up and said, Zacchaeus. Hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. He hurried and came down and received him joyfully. When they saw it, that is, the crowd, presumably scribes, Pharisees, other people, just generic crowd they all grumbled, "He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner." Now, there's a little bit of jealousy here, probably. They're all vying for Jesus' attention. Oh, Jesus, look how awesome you are. Hooray for you. And they're all gathered around. And, and who's going to be the one to keep Jesus? To, he's going to stay with them. Remember, Jesus doesn't have a house. He's staying with people in different towns. But note the two contrasting responses here. Joy or grumbling. Zacchaeus received with Joy. I'm the special chosen, maybe, or just happy to be noticed. I don't know. It's hard to say. Jesus exemplifying, again, this attitude towards tax collectors. But what separated the two? Joy and grumbling? It wasn't Jesus. It was the heart condition of each group. Those who were eager to accept Jesus had joy, and those who resisted. What did Luke say about those who had resisted? They resisted the purpose of God. He said that back in Luke chapter 5, or Luke chapter 7. What made them joyous or grumbling wasn't Jesus' actions. It was their own hearts. If they were willing to accept what Jesus said, willing to accept who Jesus was, or not. And we think about today, of course. What might cause people to grumble in such a way? Oh, did you see who so-and-so is hanging out with? Did you see who so-and-so is talking to? How dare they? Don't they know what that person did? Don't they know how horrible that person is? That's a you problem. Being unwilling to accept the possibility of redemption and forgiveness. Unwilling to accept that maybe God can work in the lives of those who we would never imagine, never suspect. It's not up to us. It's up to him. We keep reading in verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, of course this is at, later at the feast, he's, he's come to Jesus' house. He stood and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything... I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Reiterating what he said already through Luke a number of times that we've read, the Son of Man came to seek and save who? The lost, of which Zacchaeus is one. There are two ways to read this if we're thinking about Zacchaeus. One gracious, one a little bit more strict. On the one hand, you might think, okay, maybe Zacchaeus is trying to buy his forgiveness in the vein of Simon the sorcerer. Right? Let, us, let me purchase this as gift that I may give that gift to others. And, and you could read it that way, but I, I don't think it's intended to be that way. I see this rather as true repentance. One who has understood the value that Jesus has given him and understood what the value of material things is in comparison Luke 3, verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds, you came out. This is John. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Uh, Actually, I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Uh, Remember what he said? He too is the son of Abraham. But of course we know he's looking forward to the son of Abraham, not just physically, but who's the son of Abraham? The one who's going to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. God is even able from these stones. Being an Israelite, just an Israelite, it's going to save you. But are you going to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. More importantly, Zacchaeus does not convert in name only. It's not just an emotional state. I believe in you, Jesus. I'm going to just keep doing what I want. But I believe in you. I'm really glad you're here, Jesus. But it doesn't really change anything. This repentance Zacchaeus experiences leads to a change in action. The fruit in keeping with repentance is what? I will give half of my goods to, report to the poor if I've defrauded anyone, which, let's be honest, he has. I will restore it fourfold. I'll give them back. I won't just make restitution... I'll go above and beyond, which is the command over and over in Scripture to go above and beyond. What we see in this encounter is why Jesus was unwilling to write off the outcast, in this case, the moral outcast. But we could think about the woman caught in adultery. We could think about any number of stories. He knew that many people had written off were capable of true repentance. Because isn't that what we're going for here? When we think about evangelism, we think about seeking and saving the lost, the goal is to find those who can truly, who will truly repent. And how do we know who it is? We don't. We don't! And so we must treat everyone as if they might, they could, and perhaps they will. Of course, we might ask the same question of us, though. Does your repentance look like this? What fruit does your repentance bear? That is to say, as you've encountered Jesus in your life, his teaching, his priorities, his goals, you've learned more about him. What difference has that made in your life? What tangible, actual difference? Is there any difference at all? Is there things in your life that you've changed because of your increasing knowledge and growth in Jesus? And if the answer is nothing then might I I suggest that you are not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. That your repentance is in name only. It's not true. It's not real. So, we might be tempted to write off this radical example of Jesus, one who would associate with tax collectors and sinners, one who would eat with them, stay in their house, and you might think, well, Jesus knew who was going to do that, so he could do that, but that's a cop-out. Just because we can't be sure such and such a person is going to repent doesn't mean we don't engage with them. In fact, it means the opposite. My lack of knowledge, unlike Jesus, means that I am more gracious, more open, more willing to accept that others might repent, not less. Jesus, in his supernatural knowledge, knew exactly this person might repent, this person will, this person won't. That enabled him to be selective about some things. My lack of knowledge means that I'm not more selective. It means I'm less selective. Jesus was very clear about his mission, right? His purpose. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 15.7, we haven't read this yet. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. If you only spend time with other righteous people, you are missing the point. You're missing the purpose. If we want to be like Jesus, We want to emulate his priorities, his purpose, his mission. Because isn't that our purpose, following in his footsteps? And if we're thinking about what does it mean for us, it means spending time engaging with those who are lost. Because I don't know who might repent. I don't know who might accept, who might change. Only God does. And I'd like to be his instrument for that change. So if we're only spending time with those we think, yeah, I'm I'm confident this person's righteous or this person will be righteous. Not only are we, A, missing the point of Jesus' purpose, we are limiting, limiting by our sin, God's ability to work in the world. Because he wants to work through us, right? He wants to work through you and me to reach the lost. As we conclude, we can learn something from each player in this story. From Zacchaeus, what do we see? Well... The importance of seeking Jesus at all costs. We sort of glossed over it in the story, but I think the most memorable part, of course, about the story is he's climbing up the tree. And how many of us fail to find Jesus, fail to grow as Christians out of fear of embarrassment, fear of what others will think, fear about what others do? He comes to Jesus, or he's trying to find Jesus. There's a crowd in the way. How many of us would have just given up and walked away? Well, I guess I'm not going to see Jesus today. What do you allow to get in the way of finding him? of growing in him, of learning from him. Secondly, we also see what true repentance looks like, right? Not just saying sorry, but making it right. And I know there's conflicts in the group because it's a group of people. Inevitably, there'll be conflicts. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry, but what can I do to make it right? Zacchaeus, if I've defrauded anyone, store it fourfold, his willingness to make things right. And of course, in our own lives, hopefully, we're thinking about the same things. What do I do to make it right with others, but also with God? Not just feeling bad, not just saying sorry, but doing something about it. That's what true repentance is. From the onlookers, we can learn a couple of things. Number one, the danger of self-righteousness. Oh, I'm better than that guy, for sure. That guy's horrible. But once we slip into that mentality, I'm better than that guy, what does that mean? It means I'm gonna stop looking for Jesus. Because the complaint, he eats with sinners, as we've noted, who does that apply to? Literally anyone Jesus ate with is a sinner. Everyone Jesus can encounter is lost, is unrighteous, is unworthy. But it's when we begin to think, well, that applies to other people, but not me. What's that going to lead us? To ignore Jesus, to refuse to engage with him. To go away from him. The temptation to prioritize the wrong things. In this case, prioritizing what? Well, Jesus, you're spending time with the wrong people. Prioritizing their own view of things, not God's. Prioritizing their own knowledge of people's hearts, not God's. Don't be like those who looked on, who had totally the wrong idea about other people. And ultimately from Jesus, what do we see? The need to see the potential for good in others. All of the texts about judging. There's a lot of texts about judging in the in the New Testament. Matthew 7, of course, is the most famous. Judge not lest ye be judged. There's a, a number in James, James chapter 2. Hold the confidence of the Lord without partiality, right? The, the idea of, of not discriminating based on appearance. Of course, ultimately in the life of Jesus, that is exemplified the, the lack of judgment in providing equal opportunity for repentance. And for us, it's going to be this. Who do we share the gospel with? Who do we pursue? Who do we seek to engage with? And if we're emulating the life of Jesus, the answer is who? Whoever it is that's in our lives. Whoever it is that we know that needs to hear the gospel. The importance of association as an evangelistic method. People need to hear the truth. And who are they going to hear it from? Well, hopefully you. Hopefully me. Who are you in this encounter? We'd all like to think we're Jesus. Or maybe Zacchaeus. But most of us, most of the time, are probably the onlookers. Those who have our own ideas about things. Who get in the way of others seeing Jesus. are unwilling to accept the truth that Jesus offered, I'd like to be Jesus ultimately in the story, right? That's who I'd like to be. The one who shares the message with others, who brings salvation to others. Not that I'm saving them, but I'm bringing that message of salvation. If I can't be Jesus, at least I'd like to be Zacchaeus. To be unwilling to let anything get in the way of going to Jesus. To be willing to make things right when I find things that are wrong. Who are you? And who would you like to be?